Hey, Jim. <laughs> What's going on? Not too much. How are you? Grand. So it wasn't, it wasn't recording. It didn't start automatically. Did this time? Did it record this time? It's recording now, but I had to push it. So it was after you said. All right. Let, let, let's hey. start over. <clears throat> hey, Joe. No, I was doing mouth sounds. Hang Man, on. Stop it with that. <clears throat> Hey, Joe. Hey, Jim. What's going on? Uh, not too much. What's happening with you? You know, just hanging out. It's this... Mm. We're going we're gonna to start again, Jim. Sorry. Okay, that's fine. <sighs> Mouth sounds. We're one minute in. <laughs> we're doing great. <laughs> See, now I don't know if that's just a bit. <laughs> is it just a bit, the mouth sounds? No, like, are we actually going to start over again, or is, is everything in the show in the show? I, I think some of it's in the show. <clears throat> unclear. It's unclear. Now we're tainting all of this material with discussions about what's in the show. That's fine. That's fine. Hey, Joe. Yeah. Hey, Jim. <laughs> what's going on not too much how are you i'm grand it's just a nice tuesday evening tuesday evening let's see i had some notes somewhere hmm. i should have opened i should have found them before we started recording well you know you've you've got some time we can uh we get we got we got some catching up to do i think before we mm. get to the the thick material, mm. right? Or as the the French call it, the thick material, <laughs> something like that. The material See. thick. On fleek. Um, let's see. I think it's in here. I'm still gonna open my note. Hmm. You know, I've also failed to open our our Google Doc, but that's. Yeah, I just haven't kept up with that. Yeah, I, I honestly couldn't even tell you what's in it. Um, yeah, you know, maybe we'll... something something about dogs. I don't know. You hate dogs. Hey, now you said that. Probably have. I think you're just caught up on the idea of a dog. You know, I think if you met the right dog. <laughs> If you just met the right dog, Joseph, you'd you'd know. Well, I I don't think uh, I don't think your current lifestyle really could support a dog. Oh, certainly not. Certainly not. That's that's your problem, not mine. Right, you've got a house. I've got a house. It, it like buying a house and being married begs for a dog. Yeah, that's what it begs for. <laughs> You're getting a dog, is what uh, you're telling me. The, not, no, not yet. Probably not for a while. I'd like a dog. I I I like dogs. Started with a cat. Got a cat. Love my cat. Want a cat-dog friendship? I would love for there to be a cat-dog friendship, but my cat does cannot abide a dog. Have you seen your uh, cat with a dog? Yes. Yeah. The uh, Barley's first interaction... 
with a dog was with a friend of ours, um, Black Lab. Is that Courtney's? Yes, Cooper. Cooper's Cooper. the dog. Mm-hmm. And um, Cooper is the chillest dog. Literally, like, didn't even once bark at the cat. Just like it's just he 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 had a cat at home at certain points in his life, and uh, was best of friends with this cat, and was like totally chill with cats. Um, he merely goes to you know look at Barley, and Barley just would hiss and swat at and be a general asshole to to cooper right and wasn't afraid of cooper because cooper wasn't really reacting he was just like what what the fuck like what are you what are you doing what is what is this thing yeah like what is this thing doing to me um and then so so as you can imagine it's a black lab so he's like a pretty big dog um then our (laughs) mutual friend Devin has been over a couple times with his dog gus oh the little dachshund um Dachshund. Dachshund. How do you say that? Dash Hund. Dash Hund. Dash, Dash Hund. Dash Hund. Hund Kinter. Um, Kinter Verfer. Hund, Hund Verfer. Um, but yeah, so uh, Cooper, on the other hand, was not chill with Barley and immediately like started barking at him. And that's when Barley just like runs up to the top of the stairs and sits on his little, like, little, little stoop at the top step and... Do you mean Gus? No, 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 Barley. Barley ran from Gus. Right. And, right, yeah. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I said Cooper, didn't I? Um, yeah, you did. Yeah, no, I meant Gus. So Barley Barley runs from Gus immediately, sits at the top step, and glares at him ceaselessly until Coop, uh, Gus leaves. Mm. Yeah, so no no cat-dog friendship, unfortunately. I don't think so. I mean, I, I like, if there was a living dog, I feel like they would eventually, like, get used to one another, right? I mean, is that how that works? And potentially. I mean, Barley sees the dog pr- probably as a threat of some kind because it's an mm-hmm. unknown. Yeah. But when it's a known, it's a different thing. Is that, yeah, I guess... Cats and dogs just don't generally hate each other. That's not just the way it is. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think there certainly is a tendency there. Like, that trope doesn't come from nowhere. Right. But. But if they're literally cohabitating, like, eventually they'll at least leave each other alone. Right. Or, or the dog kills the cat. (laughs) <laughs> or murder murder each other in the middle of the night. Yeah. <laughs> or literally the dog eats the cat. <laughs> Depending on the size of the dog. I don't know. Could Barley take Gus? Barley could probably take Gus. Barley is approximately the same size as Gus, and I think a cat is more of like a killing machine than a dog is. For sure. It's a tiny tiger that lives in your house. Yeah, it's a tiny tiger. Lives in my house. Plots close, my C- close CGP Gray. Waits for me patiently to die so he can eat my face. Mm-hmm. That's what they do. Yeah. <clears throat> um, but yeah, no, no, no dog in the foreseeable future, um, unfortunately. But so it goes. So it goes. Yeah. Chickens, cat. Chickens, cat. You still have chickens, right? Yes, I, I, we're down to three chickens. Down to three. One got one got out. Well, we had mm-hmm. four hens and. One- one got it. 
he, he, yeah, she, she probably got at. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so it goes. So it goes. Um, yeah, this is status of my home life. I'm married now. That happened since our last episode. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, you know that. You were. The... I knew that. I was yeah. there. <laughs> I did that. But yeah, Jim's now married. Woohoo! Woohoo! And now wear a ring. Yeah, have you been playing with it a lot? Yeah, yeah, I fiddle with it uh, constantly. Yeah, knock it on desks like Frank Underwood. It's really oh. annoying. Oh, I'm sorry, he was canceled. He was canceled, yeah, he got canceled. He got banned from public life. Yeah, canceled. <laughs> Rightfully so, but canceled. Yeah. You know, I mean, cancel culture, it's a thing, yeah. you know, but just like how cats don't like dogs. Elaborate. It's a thing for a reason. Fair enough. You know, people should be canceled all the time. Yeah, there's a lot of people that I I wish would just be canceled. I'm I'm sick of hearing from them. Yeah. Like, cancel this person. Like, it doesn't mean die. You know, that doesn't mean they're dead. Certainly not. It's just no no longer relevant in the public sphere. Yeah. However we define the public sphere. Yes. Whatever that means. Because that's, you know, the idea of a public sphere is just baked into our rhetoric. Mm -hmm. It's so deep in there. And that's important because, you know, the public sphere differentiates from the private sphere, like the existence of a public sphere, I think in a way opens the door for the existence of a private sphere. Mm -hmm. So I think having that idea of the public conversation, there being a public conversation is just deeply ingrained in the way we think of ourselves. And I wonder if like, you know, the social media websites grew up in the United States. I think like there are social media websites from other countries, but I don't know. I think the, um, I'm losing the thread here. Uh, you know, it's the uh, the fifth estate. The fifth estate, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I'll edit all this out. <sighs> this will never air. This will never air. But, uh, no, I'm actually going to edit this out because I'm well, really blanking. Well, you, you know, you're not blanking. Well, you are blanking. But, you know, the you were talking about the... <clears throat> How the the uh, the presence of a public sphere and a public conversation gives right. rise to private uh, life, right? Right. Like private, um, right. Uh, establishment of norms and mores right. and whatnot. Like, yeah, the idea that we have a private sphere is incredibly important to so many of our what we call rights. Like, mm-hmm. they're those ideas are entangled. Yeah. Like your privacy gives rise to 
the abortion right. Mm-hmm. Your privacy gives right to your the contraception right. Like yeah. your privacy gives rise to the attorney-client privilege. Mm-hmm. Right, like it's it's just interesting how we have that sort of dichotomy and like the place on the spectrum from that autonomy like that like how big the private sphere is compared to how dispersed the public sphere is Mm -hmm. is i think i'm like a vector along which different civilizations exist yeah right like your what would be considered a private affair in say the united states might be a very public thing in your town in other cultures uh for example like who you're going to date and marry. Right. Yeah. For example, Mm -hmm. like there are, and I guess even within the United States, there's differences because like your family compared to mine. Sure. Yeah. Are different about how involved they are in the personal lives of the others. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that that goes to greater extremes. Like we're yeah. similar, we're a lot closer than we are to people in a different culture. Right. I think along that spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. Like I think that's one of the like fundamental vectors along which people differentiate. Yeah, Although, I mean, we might be on like different parts of a spectrum, but we're on the same scale. Right. Right. But that scale resets depending on, you know, a geographic location or, uh, you know, uh, membership to a tribe or you, you know what I mean? Like membership to a, yeah. a particular community. Yeah. A, a body politique, if you would say, like it gets back to that idea of there being a public sphere too. Yeah. Because like, what we say in public reflects on what we do in private to some degree. Right. Yeah. I I think, uh, I mean, to certain people, you know, this, this line is, I think, um, gets blurred a little bit, um, in modern times of like what, what you should share on the internet. Right. And, you know, my, my private life that I don't fully share on the internet is still the basis for what I do share publicly. For sure. And, you know, and then there's levels of that, like my personal interactions, like in a professional space versus a familiar space. And that versus like what conversations me and Cassidy have in private, like is different than those that we would have, you know, with our close friends, which is different than that we would have, with our direct family members and so on. Yeah. <clears throat> That's sort of the stratification of levels of identity, levels of 
what's the term? Sections, mm-hmm. I guess, if, you know, we refer to the term of intersectionality, like yeah, different sections. But... But yeah, I mean, it, it, this. I mean, the, it's interesting that we got at this topic from a different angle than I think we had intended, because uh, this is sort of what we had discussed talking about today, right? Like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> they're, they're definitely related. I mean, like the ideas are definitely on our uh, on our minds, which is what the homework is for. Yeah, the homework. We actually did homework this time. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit. Just a little. Just a little bit. Not, you know, I'm not reading books. I just listened to the newest hardcore history. Mm-hmm. And Which I have not done. Yeah, man. It's just. It's brutal. He, uh. One idea that came up in it that I think is an interesting idea is that he does not censor primary sources. What do you mean? So, like, people that were witness to the event he will not censor like their accounts of it even though it might be filled with racism right because there was a lot of that in the sources that he was drawing from to discuss japan in world war ii right right like their confrontations with the united states you know, he had sources from the United States that were brutal about what they expected from the Japanese people. Mm-hmm. They being the... Like U.S. generals, U.S. Right. soldiers. Yeah, and, and you mean that he doesn't censor, like, the, the clearly, like, racist language and that sort yeah. of stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's like a, it's a commitment to the historical record in a way, right. but at the same time, like, you know, I worry about like him being misconstrued because that's sure. I mean, if you talk about modern accounts of this sort of thing, like, like you saw it after, um, uh, after a couple the last time we spoke we were talking about some of the the, the mass shootings and public shootings that we, that were happening uh, earlier like this year in the summer um and people were arguing a lot online about whether or not um you know the uh these folks like manifestos should be posted publicly for people right. to read you know and you know maybe um Dan Carlin would face more scrutiny if he were talking about current events on this sort of thing. I'm sure he received right. scrutiny on talking about these things historically, but if it were current events, you know, and it's, it would be regarded in the public sphere as like, um, amplifying the voices of, you know, bigots or, um, you know, publicly racist people. Right. Um, which I mean, I think in, in some cases is a valid argument, uh, I mean, this isn't something that I've prepared for, so I haven't fully fleshed out my ideas about it. It's just kind of happening in real time now. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, when it comes to current events, you know, certainly sharing a manifesto of a white nationalist 
Right, like making that making that easy to access. Yeah, is it, it, it could have some troubling consequences. Yeah, I mean, sure. and it's also like a, there's almost like this innate feeling that um, it's giving, it's posthumously giving the perpetrator exactly what they wanted. Right, that was their goal was for to draw attention to themselves, cause harm. Most likely, I imagine they knew they were going to die, <laughs> right? Yeah. And like either here or there. Yeah. And um, knowing that a story that big would then disseminate their ideas more is, is I imagine, like exactly what their goal is. Like probably the main goal more so than the literal killing of people. Yeah. I think that's probably right. Or like the killing of the his his or, well, the cases we're talking about are both men, so I'll just say his. Uh, the more so than just his intended targets, I should say, because maybe they, you know, um, you know, our their goal ultimate goal is more killing, but by the hands of others and more people. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully. Hopefully that doesn't happen. I don't yeah, know. But just... it might be important for, you know, people like you or I to read those things and understand them. I mean, certainly historically, like looking back, um, for us, it's World War II. And listening to Dan Carlin talk about, you know, how American soldiers, uh, you know, generals and, and leaders thought about, um, you know, our enemies at the time. Yeah, that certainly gives context to it. Like that shouldn't be censored. I don't think <laughs> historically that, right. that uh, like, how do you give, how do you attribute anything that happened afterwards to, um, right. To but I mean, like a cause or, a, or, you know, a, uh, a set of ideas, but what if without exploring I mean, them? So we would just, I guess, just forget There's the details a... and say, yeah, you know, it happened and a bunch of people died. So let's forget the details. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah no, I'm just wondering like if like say 50 years from now talking about this time, like knowing how, like feeling how that piece of writing came into existence. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's like any different than Dan Carlin reading those sources today? No, I don't. I don't. That's that's what I'm saying. Right. Like for like for us, that that the context from the past is those notes that Dan Carlin's reading. Right. And in the future, it will be these sorts of things like um, when when I mean, depending on. uh what happens in the coming years. Like when we look back on this time in history of this, like rise of white nationalism in the United States and, and, you know, actually even in other places across the world, um, when we look back on it and that's a chapter in a textbook somewhere of like the rise of white nationalism in the early, uh, 21st century, you know, those sorts of things I think need to be in there. Yeah. And, you know, it might, 
You know, and it could it could give the it could give rise to the same shit in the future, I guess. You know, like um, the the these manifestos often reference writings from the past. Yeah. Um, talk about ideas that are not new. You know. I mean, people still in use the, the swastika. Yeah, exactly. It's not like that just right? went like, away. They use that symbol all the time. So, so I guess I can't say that it's. I, I guess I, I understand the argument of. You know, uh, in the current tense, like giving, giving uh, uh, amplification to these ideas is a bad thing. But in in any point in history, like those things need to be explored by the general public, so that it's you know that gives context to current events. You know, like you see so many people, like uh, you see so many people comparing uh what is uh what is often considered like the rise of fascism in the United States right of like <clears throat> making drawing connections to father uh, Coughlin yeah like well you're going to have to explain that more but um like making references to what happened in Germany bef- like world war 1 world war 2 like drawing connections to that and saying this is how these things happen, right? And the only reason they're able to have that context is because there's documents and documentation of uh, uh, people's stated intentions at that time, right? God. Wikipedia. What about it? (laughs) Just like that's the recordation, like all those documents, like... right. I don't know. I just think the way that this time is being recorded in all of the interactions that are occurring, like through Wikipedia or through social media websites and all of that, it's just, it's shocking. It's, it's, it's bizarre. You know, like what, I don't know. There's, there's so many, like there's so many pivotal documents in history that, you know, you see, an image in a textbook with a caption on it that says, you know, this was a, um, a letter written from this person to this person discussing X, Y, and Z matters that led to in part to, uh, the conflicts in world war two or whatever, you know, like, uh, I'm just like pulling this out of my ass, but you know, there's like that, but in the future are we going to have like, yeah, this is when, um, uh, the 45th president of the United States, like tweeted something that just like set, uh, North Korea off <laughs> and caused right. the first nuclear war. And <laughs> since, uh, world war two, I mean, it's already happened. What the, the president tweeting something that, yeah, caused, that, like, fire, that events. fire yeah, and yeah, fury. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's like if there is a war, like it doesn't feel like it right now. That that would be a a direct result of that tweet. But if you were looking at that through the like with the compression that time puts on things, right? It would be like yeah, the tensions were rising, and then there was this weird breakthrough, and then it got really bad really fast. You know what I mean? Like that would be one story. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, it would. You know, in our in our contemporary context, like 
that happened what the fire and fury tweet thing was that, that was like two ages, years ago that was like it seems like forever ago, ago but if that happens five years before all out nuclear war like that's gonna be regarded as a pivotal moment <laughs> yeah will Kefefe Charles... be in uh textbooks you think uh doubtful <laughs> Charles Edward Coughlin was a Canadian-American Roman Catholic priest based in the United States near Detroit, founding priest of the National Shrine of the Little Flower Church. Commonly known as Father Coughlin, is one of the first political leaders to use radio to reach a mass audience. Oh, yeah. We have talked about this before. Mm. Well, I don't know if here, if we spoke about it here. but Not, I don't think on air, but, but yeah, this guy. Estimated 30 million listeners tuned into his weekly broadcasts. Oh, Dan Carlin talks about this in one of his series. Series, yeah. yes, probably when he was doing Common Sense. Okay, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. Oh man, I miss that. Is he not doing it anymore, or is it just no, long in between? Not. No, he's not doing it anymore. Huh. I wonder why not. Reality got too crazy for him. Literally, does it, has he spoken about this? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is like this whole Trump phenomenon. He's just like, you know, I've been looking for an because he's been asking for like an outsider candidate, right, for a long time, and he's like, well, I got it, and it's horrible. So there's that. <laughs> he's like, so I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, don't know. I don't know if that's true because like, what's the what's the negative to Trump is Bernie Sanders, right? And maybe that in would so be so many ways. <laughs> in so many ways. But who knows? Oh, I mean, the the rhetoric on the right would be insufferable. Oh yeah. The... Oh man, it would be insane. It would be scary. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm actually kind of terrified of what would happen. I mean. Don't get me wrong. I'm in it. I'm in for it. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, that's. May you live in interesting times. Like, let's. You want a boomerang? Like, let's boomerang. Yeah. Like, you, you know, response to Obama is Donald Trump. Like, all right. Here's Bernie Sanders. The Obama years were so weird, too. And, like, I, I, I mean,. I haven't been paying attention to politics long enough and nor do I really fully pay attention to politics now. It's just kind of like inescapable to hear about it. Um, but like, where did this turn happen? Like, it seems, it seems like the, the GOP can't have been this like the way they are for ever. Like I I just don't believe that. No, no, you know, they and, haven't. And the I mean, even the the Democratic Party is just everybody in the public public sphere, or like in that in the political sphere, is just just seems totally insane to me. How everybody in the public sphere seems totally insane to me. That's yeah. That's yeah. like not just political sphere. Like to to handle that much attention about what you're like talk about not having a private life right i I think there's too much information 
I think that's what I think. I think humans weren't able to keep up with the influx of information. I don't buy that. I think we're <laughs> really adaptable. Like it, it's just. It's not like we're playing chess all the time. Yeah, I couldn't put my finger on. I don't know. It just seems. It just seems like it's. There's so well, you know, and maybe this, maybe the media is is where the craziness has come from. Maybe it's the the rise of everybody, like uh, you know, literally everybody having a voice in the, you know in the form of social media. Anybody being able to share anything or say anything, and if something resonates, it just takes off whether it's factual or not it's difficult to follow this this thread right of whether you know am i just um radicalized in my own way where i view the public opinions shared in social media and just scoff you know right I look at, you know, I look at Facebook as little as possible. I yeah. still have one. I, I, it's, Me too. it's terribly toxic, honestly, but you know, I see things to the, to the, uh, um, things saying things to the effect of, um, uh, if you, think that we should value our uh, military veterans over illegal immigrants, then uh, like be brave enough to share this post or whatever. Oh yeah. And it's, it's like the, you know, those, those things are not mutually exclusive. You could, you don't need to put a hierarchy on like on, on what a valuable human life is. <laughs> No, you can... know, and it's not it's not like, you know, there was ever an effort to take veterans benefits like money from veteran benefits away in order to fund immigration policy, like progressive immigration policy. You know, that's not that hasn't happened. That hasn't happened. That's not even a thing They they don't have anything to do with one another, really. Uh, it's like, do you the do you think that we should value uh, supporting our veterans over continuing to create more veterans? <laughs> like, uh, do you value our veterans uh, more than uh, literally killing people in other countries? Yeah, <laughs> um, those are better questions. You know, because they're related. Because they're you know a part of the same complex, <laughs> at least. You know? Hopefully, I mean, I think. In a lot of ways, the complex that supports our military, you know, pushes off veterans affairs to other parts of the government, like the VA, right? Right. Like, those are separate, separately funded. Like, you, you would think that that would be included in the military budget. Yeah, you would. It's not. No, I don't think so. Hmm. You know, but I mean, like, depends on what you, how you report it. Sure, you can report 
those two numbers combined and call it our real military budget, right? Like that's easy enough for people to do. Right. Like, what's the VA budget? Two hundred and twenty billion. It's pretty big. That's what the president requested in for fiscal year twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. So it's probably not actually that. BA is requesting a total of $220.2 billion in fiscal year 2020 for the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. A 9.7, increase above fiscal year 2019. Okay, so it's pretty close to to real. Yeah, I think so. It's a 9.6% increase, which is a, subsi- a substantial increase. For sure. You know, I mean, back to interest rates. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. If you're getting 10% more. So we'll see if it happens, but that's the budget that is proposed by the executive branch. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, our military is, what, $700 billion? Yeah, something like that. So, I mean, what's that? Uh, is it military 20, or 20... Like defense budget, right? So, mm. because defense, I know a lot of, I mean, a lot of stuff is routed through there, right? It's not yeah. just literal, uh, you know, war things. Um, it's not in defense of a giant military budget at all, but. I'm just saying I think there's a lot more in the universities and, like, research and stuff like that. Right. But, I mean, it's... Related. And like, annoying. we could be doing that research not for military purposes. Yeah. Right? We could be funding better research, honestly. Sure. Because if we're guiding our research based on what kills people most efficiently, like... Yeah, or what? Yeah, not a great idea. Helps the military kill people more efficiently because it might, you know, it might be a supporting thing. Energy research, you know, right? But still, like, I mean, you know, like just because there are overlaps between what's important for the military and what's important for civilian life doesn't mean that we shouldn't be focusing our research and money towards what will improve civilian life as yeah. opposed to military life. Right. It's a paradigm shift, right? You you might be doing the same research on materials, you know, like, or whatever, technology. You might be doing a very similar project, but if you're looking looking at it through the lens of fueling a military industrial complex, that's one thing. And, you know, you can just shift that to doing the research with the intended purpose of um, improving public life or whatever. Yeah. Or private life or whatever. Yeah. Um, Should we talk about the Internet and the third estate more explicitly? Yeah. 
Sure. Should we? I don't know. It's an interesting idea. Yeah. I mean, we've kind yeah. of, yeah, I mean, we've kind of... We've touched on it, but there's it, yeah. the explicit idea of... Is Mark Zuckerberg called Facebook the fifth estate? Which is in reference to the fourth estate, which is the press, which is referring to... Uh, the third estate, which is the, the public. Third, the third estate, which is the commerce. The, and the second estate is the nobility, and the first estate is the clergy or the king. So, those are the estates, and so he called it the fifth estate. But really, it's about giving the voice to the third estate. The, the voice of Everybody the fourth estate to the third estate. Right. Right. Like the ability to amplify messaging the way that the second estate, the nobility, was able to do with the capital expenditure of a printing press. Right. So if you had the capital to purchase or rent time on a printing press and the capital to get the idea, the, the education to, you know, learn how to do these things to write and all or whatever write translate write translate print you know yeah you you then took the it was the power was shifted from the you know what was historically the clergy where the dissemination of information was basically through a centralized force essentially right. being the, the church catholic in church. europe you know we're talking about the catholic church in europe um, where monks would, or yeah, monks, whatever, uh, yeah. clergy people would copy books by hand, and so you know the the uh, <clears throat> the decision makers in the church are the ones that decide where what information gets disseminated, and then you have the um, second estate where. Uh, the nobility then had the power after the invention of the printing press to both be educated to use it and have the um, uh, fiscal ability to disseminate that information in whatever way they saw fit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third state being the commerce. So where where is that shift, right? The... Did those right, sort of like, things... are we in the midst of a shift from media being controlled, like the public discourse? And it gets back to the same thing we're talking about. Like, where is the public discourse? Like, what yeah. is the public discourse? Right. The public discourse isn't, you know, the local town hall <laughs> anymore. <laughs> At least right. it's not the main, main one. You know, I mean, it is it is for some people, right? I'm just saying the vast majority of people um, use uh, Facebook over uh, going to town hall meetings, right? You know, so way more, way more people. Yeah. So anyway, the the media at a certain point, 
I mean, it's tied. It's kind of like married to the nobility because, you know, newspapers and uh, television, like news television networks and stuff don't happen without large amounts of money. Without lots of capital. Yeah. And there's and that uh, implies that implies gatekeepers. Yeah. Which is another point that was referenced in, you know, the internet and the third estate. Yeah. So yeah, and then the there's there's sure there's gatekeepers there. You know, not there's a, you can write an op-ed or whatever, but still, the, there's an editor, there's a person that owns the newspaper or whatever that decides ultimately decides what actually gets printed, what information gets disseminated. But we're right. we're kind of in the midst of a um, transition, right? Of there being fewer gatekeepers with the free and open internet, right? Right. You know, there's, right. Facebook doesn't tell you what you can't, can and can't post. Really, they have rules. Sure, they've got rules. And you know, so in a way, they 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 still are a gatekeeper. But, but they don't. But they don't. Um, apply those rules to politicians. Why do you say that? Because that's their they policy. Just, they just literally don't. They, like a state. They literally they will not police the advertisements of politicians. Right. Yes. They refuse to weigh in on that, which is what is a big right. public debate right now about um, whether or not Facebook should. Uh, fact check the uh, advertises uh, advertisements that are purchased by politicians. Right. And I mean, this kind of ties into with the dissemination of information of like, uh, you know, white nationalists manifestos. Cause it's like, it, it, it's the argument of, you know, this information shouldn't be put in front of people. So it should be censored or right. Whatever. And I have a difficult time with this argument because there are so many people in the public that will be misled by false information or, you know, misleading information being put out there by whatever politicians. Like we can pick on the Republicans if we want or Donald Trump or whatever, but it's, it's anybody like they, and there's a lot of that out there on both sides. There's bad people on both sides. <laughs> good people on both sides no No, but like seriously you know there's 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 bad actors everywhere you know and it's uh to the the implication here is that um there's a call for facebook and facebook is you know what what we're talking about right now in the future this is going to you know this is setting precedent for stuff in the future, right? Like we're not just thinking about the way things are right now. We have to think in the future. This is setting a precedent for something where we as a public can push an entity like Facebook to be more of a gatekeeper, right? Right. And say this is allowed or this is not allowed here. This is not appropriate for our discourse here. And in whose hands do you want to trust that kind of power? Right. Uh, 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it's already sort of official. Like, if they're not going to police the speech of, of political candidates, who is a political candidate? Like, does anybody that declare automatically get anybody that declares to be a political candidate automatically get free reign on Facebook to say whatever they want, regardless of the facts, regardless of the content? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't get censored as far as I could put all kinds of false information out there, but. So like who is this who is this really what is this in service of like who who if the stated purpose is to yeah we're going to we're going to not um police political candidates um but we will police people of a certain level of popularity or whatever like um, like you look at something like, uh, you know, a mass shooter person, like the, someone who is committing a like mass murder, Facebook living their killing spree. Mm-hmm. And clearly that should be taken down immediately. Right. Like, yes. We can agree on that. Um, I forget where I was going with that exactly. But yeah. Well, I mean, so, so where's the, where's the line, right? There's, yeah. Um I can say uh literally anything on Facebook and probably as long like if it's not it, it, I could say anything that's false on uh, on the internet and as long as it's not like inciting violence or something or mm-hmm. referencing anything like explicitly illegal if I express a false false information on the internet like like facebook's not gonna turn it off <laughs> you know they're not gonna like ban me <laughs> right cancel my facebook profile i mean well people that get see the way this works is that there are pages on facebook that mm-hmm. get followers right, right 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 and they disseminate information to a group or particular right group. like you you know you as an individual user would probably not face the scrutiny but pages that get millions of views definitely face that type of scrutiny like in a more heavy way sure and i think rightfully so yeah but at at what point do you need to just i don't know like as a governing entity over this this stuff like at what point do you just need to be like well people need to be smarter, right? Like I, I, like when it comes to violence and like hate crimes and stuff, I, I understand that's like way more of a sensitive thing and like can pose an immediate threat to like individuals and individual groups. But how do you like something that's says like how many like Facebook pages are there out there that say, uh, Indiana moms for Trump and it's just some rando person that started it. It's like nothing official. And they just like share stupid memes that say, um, if you value veterans lives over immigrants, um, share this post if you have the balls. Right. You know, like that's stupid and has nothing to do, but should that be censored? Like, I don't think it should be censored. I think it should just be obvious that it's stupid and has nothing to do with anything. Right. But 
Yeah, I just don't know where that line is. Yeah, it's a very hard line to walk. And I think, you know, Facebook has been hewing towards this idea of free expression. But, you know, there's stuff that ought to be censored. And we, you know, can't have an absolutist view of any of this no. stuff. No, no, and I think this, this like, relates to another conversation we've had about... um well, I think it was on air about like, you know, liberties and rights, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a line there because if everybody had 100% liberty, there wouldn't be any laws. We'd be living in anarchy. <laughs> so like, yeah, right. liberty is a value that we hold dear and is important, but you give up liberties in order to reap the benefits have, of a society. <laughs> have order. Yeah, to like to not be murdered, you know, to, for there to be police. You know, you're giving up liberty. You're allowing, you're giving, yeah, this is what we were talking about. Like you give up, you give the, we tacitly give the government a monopoly on violence in the form of military and police force mm-hmm. because, and we accept that I at any time could be uh, kidnapped by the government lawfully and held um against my will if only, i do well, something that's wrong lawful, if i break the contract lawful, right if it's i break the contract if they've got probable cause yeah sure there there are caveats but i'm saying that like give like that's the contract that we sign as like as being a part of this society yeah and do you know what's another crazy contract that was signed what's that the Geneva Conventions. <laughs> You're done with that conversation. The Geneva Conventions are crazy. Yeah. It's crazy in a good way. In a crazy like a fox in a good way. Like, I cannot believe that people got that sort of agreement together. Except I can believe it because they never worked. <laughs> the 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 Geneva Conventions never worked. Yeah, I, I mean we're. Well, are you saying they didn't work because they're not followed to the T by everybody? Because <laughs> laws mean, don't aren't either. <laughs> I mean, that's like saying laws don't work because I mean, people are still out, murdered. <laughs> they came out in 1864, the first one, for the amelioration of the condition of the wounded and sick in armed forces in the field. Mm-hmm. You know, where they established the universal insignia, the neutrality of ambulances and medical personnel, the indiscriminate treatment of all soldiers found on the field after any yeah, soldier that was like, you know, killing, taken out of battle. Uh, killing um, prisoners of war. Yeah, not killing prisoners of war. Although I think that came out in 1929. The rel- relative to the treatment of prisoners of war mm-hmm. came out in 1929. Well, so, I'm sure POWs have died since then in the hands of, uh, you know, their, their I captors. mean, World War II. I was yeah. just listening to Dan Carlin's <laughs> Hardcore History, and you know, the United States soldiers would, in, like, would go and verify that Japanese soldiers were dead by shooting them in the head because there were a lot of stories that went around of Japanese soldiers holding onto grenades and pretending to be dead and then detonating the grenade when American soldiers were near. Right. 
So there was this horrible, these horrible stories about Japanese soldiers that caused the United States soldiers to commit, absolutely commit war crimes. Mm-hmm. Well, not to mention the, you know, the ending of the war. <laughs> yeah. To mention it precisely. Like it well, was outlined, I think, in the first Geneva Convention about like killing civilians. No, was that it? was actually 1949. That was, that was 1949? Really? Relative so it was like as a result, civilian persons in time of war. That was that was the later one. Yeah, that okay. happened after in, World War. II. As a direct that result, was in response. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's terribly that's horrific, and that's like in living memory. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, it's it's not ancient history. No. It's it's absolutely insane because if like to to think now like people that lived through the eighties, the seventies and eighties in in uh, abject fear fear or, uh, that's not even the right word, use of those words um, in total fear of uh, like impending nuclear, nuclear war, yeah, because that's what would happen now like if a nuclear bomb was detonated anywhere against anybody, it, pff, life as we know it would pretty, would be over. I don't think so. Ah, dude. I don't think that anybody would nuke immediately in response to a nuke. Cause there'd be an assumption that it was a, a terrorist organization and they'd be like, who do we nuke? I don't know. I think there's, more information than that. Like, look yeah, at the res- like automated response systems, like what happened in Hawaii a couple years ago. Oh, right. Where they, like, people in Hawaii literally got a text message that said, there's a bomb on its way from North Korea right now. <laughs> You're going to die. Yeah. You know, that, that was obviously not true, but, like, there's... The, there's systems in place to, you know, um, glean that information. Right. But. Well, and so let me be clear too. I don't think it will happen or could happen just because, yeah, the mutually assured destruction thing, but also, um, yeah, you know, the, in part, like thanks to the ridiculous amount of money that the U S government spends on defense, We've got absurdly complex, excuse me, absurdly complex systems for monitoring and uh, reacting to these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. You just like they, I don't, I don't think a intercontinental ballistics missile would even make it over U.S. waters. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, at I least that's what I'm led to believe, anyway. At least that's what you hope. Yeah. But, yeah. Anywho, the Red Cross is crazy. The Red Cross is crazy. <laughs> yeah, the Geneva Conventions, the Red Cross. Apparently, there was this guy named Henry Dunant mm-hmm. who goes on this business trip right after the Battle of Solfin- Solferino. Yes. So it's a city in Crimea, I believe, called Solferino. And... 
when he's there, he just sees the aftermath of this battle. Mm -hmm. And apparently there weren't enough medical resources to handle the amount of bloodshed that had occurred. Um, And so he helps by setting up in this church and caring for more than 500 wounded soldiers. Mm Mm-hmm in this church and he goes back to Switzerland and publishes this book called a memory of Solferino. And Solferino is in Italy, by the way, it's in Italy. Yes. Oh, shit. Solferino doesn't sound uh, Ukrainian at all. Yeah, it doesn't. I thought that when I said it, it's in Italy. It's in Italy. You double check that. Yes. All right. Put this up. Um, no, no, we can totally keep it in that you were wrong. That's fine. <laughs> no, 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 you no. You need to be wrong sometimes. Um, it's northern Italy. It's like in the Alps, practically. Okay, so what? What war was that? It was eighteen sixty. I think it was eighteen fifty Yeah, 1859 resulted in the victory of the Allied French army under Napoleon III and Sardinian uh, Bonaparte army under Victor Emmanuel III. The, Bonaparte III. Ah. Uh, so not the original Bonaparte. Different Bonaparte. Different Bonaparte. Mm-hmm. The Napoleonic Wars ended in 1815. Indeed it did which I only know because of this story because there was a long period of peace in between 1815 and 1859 or so, which people suggest led to the adoption of like the widespread positive reception of a battle of Solferino. People were, all horrified at the thought of war because they hadn't witnessed it before. And it was pretty easy to travel to Italy in order to go and witness this battle. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people saw it and it just really drove at people's heartstrings. There was, there were like, there were actual spectators. (laughs) Yeah, apparently. And so, yeah, he published that book, A Memory of Solferino, and they it, it re- received widespread acclaim, and he gets together with this guy named Gustav Moiner, Moynier, um, who's a lawyer and a chairman of the Geneva Public Welfare Society. Mm-hmm. And then... They discuss his ideas from the book at a meeting of the Public Welfare Society. And then there's going to be an international congress on welfare. And then... um, So they discuss these ideas at... uh, for improving medical service and warfare at a meeting and plan to discuss them further at an international congress. Um, and then there's this long story about how they became the basis for the Geneva Conventions mm-hmm. and how they recognized that 
they needed go so they had like an international meeting they set up an international committee of the red cross mm-hmm. and recognized they needed to get states involved so the whole point of it was to set up these national committees in each country and they so that's how the the so there's an overall movement called the international red cross and red crescent movement yeah and both of those symbols are symbols that are recognized worldwide as symbols of medics there's a red cross and a red crescent right um and so yeah they pushed for the ideas in the geneva conventions which were let's see the first one in 1863 right uh i think 1863 yeah which yeah so it wasn't long after it wasn't long after the publication of jean uh, uh, dutant's book henry dunant jean henry dunant is it jean and i just read a thing on i was just reading the internet what science site Huh. Um, Jean Henry. I have him as Henry Dunnett. Dunnett? Oh, yeah. Dunnett. Anywho, yeah. So. Oh, he was born Jean Henry Dunnett with a hyphen. Jean Henry. Jean Henry. You know, because the French Swiss thing. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I, I, I'm interrupting you with an unimportant detail. No, that's okay. That's okay. Um, yeah, there's the resolutions of the International Conference in Geneva. The first one had 10 articles. And I'm not going to read them. But I'm tempted. <laughs> How long are the articles? They're not long. Article 1. Each country shall have a committee whose duty it shall be in time of war and if the need arises to assist the army medical services by every means in its power. The committee shall organize itself in the manner which seems to be most useful and appropriate. Article 2. Any number of sections may be formed to assist the committee, which shall be the central directing body. Article 3. Each committee shall get in touch with the government of its country. So that its services may be accepted should the occasion arise. Section Article 4. In peacetime, the committees and sections shall take steps to ensure their real usefulness in time of war, especially by preparing material relief of all sorts and by seeking to train and instruct voluntary medical personnel. Article 5. In time of war, the Committee of Belligerent Nations shall supply relief to their respective armies as far as their means permit. In particular, they shall organize voluntary personnel and place them on the active footing, on an active footing, and in agreement with the military authorities, shall have premises made available for the care of the wounded. They may call for assistance upon the committees of neutral countries. Article 6. On the request or with the consent of the military authorities, 
Committees may send voluntary medical personnel to the battlefield where they shall be placed under military command. Article 7. Voluntary medical personnel attached to armies shall be supplied by the respective committees with everything, unne- with everything necessary for their upkeep. Article 8. They shall wear in all countries, as a uniform distinctive sign, a white armlet with a red cross. Article 9. The committees and sections of different countries may meet in international assemblies to communicate the results of their experiences and to agree on measures to be taken in the interests of the work. Article 10. The exchange of communications between the committees of the various countries shall be made for the time being through the intermediary of the Geneva Committee. Independently of the above resolutions, the conference makes the following recommendations. That governments should extend their patronage to relief committees, which may be formed, and facilitate as far as possible the accomplishment of their task. That in time of B, the, that in time of war, the belligerent nations should proclaim the neutrality of ambulances and military hospitals, and that neutrality should likewise be recognized fully and absolutely in respect of official medical personnel, voluntary medical personnel, inhabitants of the country who go to relief of the wounded and the wounded themselves. C, that a uniform distinctive sign be recognized for the mil- medical corps of all armies or at least for all persons of the same army belonging to this service, and that a uniform flag also be adopted in all countries for ambulances and hospitals. It's so weird that, I don't know, like, especially in the time, like the way war was, it's very different now, I think. Mm -hmm. But, to lay out rules like that like okay we can still do war but here are the ground rules right um as beyond these lines you will be a war criminal yeah and you know what uh uh under whose authority right like i I know the the member nations of this agreement sure right but it's like we're at war and if you make war crimes we will wage more war on you (laughs) We'll wage more war. We'll do. We'll already do the worst. You know. We'll continue to do the worst thing that we can do. Yeah. We'll continue to do more war. You might, in the process, convince more people to do war on you. Yeah. And it's not. I'm not saying it's a bad thing because, like, obviously, it's a step in the direction of less war, right? Or more humane war. More humane war. Less inhumane war. Yeah, but that was 1863. Yeah. Relatively and modern. But relatively war was modern. terrible. Like, World War One was insane. Yeah. Like, definitely, I mean, I think a lot more people died in World War Two. For sure. Right. Was, I'm trying to think of where the transition was, like, industrially. Like, there were, like, one of those World Wars, there was just, like, a big shift in technology where the mentality of how wars were fought didn't change much, but the tools used changed a lot. Right. You know? Yeah, I think World War One. Like automatic weapons, planes, like... Yeah. Those kinds of things. They, four years, three months, Tanks. and two weeks tanks 
just it's uh yeah it's pretty it's pretty unbelievable it really is you know and i i'm not sure you know that we deal with war any better now you know that's i mean in terms of number of people dying is one thing but in terms of the fact that you know the united states can be at war with whomever they want right now without actually having to to declare war <laughs> you know the uh -huh. the public i don't think is necessarily always aware of like who we're at war with yeah like which seven nations we're currently dropping bombs on yeah <laughs> i'm not sure I, i'm i'm really not entirely sure either I mean, I think technically America's not at war with anybody. It's just all an extension of the authorization for the use of military force given to the president in uh, September of 2001. Oh, how about this? December 2018. According to the report, America is conducting counterterror operations in 76 countries. What? I mean, we have bases in so many countries. Yeah, like we have them all over the place. Well, counter-terror operations doesn't mean necessarily dropping bombs or right. killing anybody. It, it uh, might be intel intelligence gathering or whatever. Right, or training or, or whatever. Training, yeah. <clears throat> Let's see, there's a website, the Internet Science page again. Lists of wars involving the United States. Oh, oh dear. Last one that has is American intervention in Libya. 2015 to present. Yemeni civil war, 2015 to present. American-led intervention in Syria, Iraq. Operation Observant Compass. International intervention in Libya. La la la. Yeah, okay. So, uh, the American Revolutionary War, uh, Cherokee American Wars, Northwest Indian War, Shays Rebellion. That's not one I've heard of. What's that? I think that's an interesting one. Yeah. As opposed to a debt crisis. So, it was about the banks, buddy. <laughs> Part of the overall war on terror. Guess what, people? Terrorism is always going to exist. People be crazy. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure terrorism is always going to exist somewhere. You think so? It's like... I don't know. It's hard to not... It's hard to believe that, it, that it'll go away, right? Because... Uh, I don't know. Because, well, first off... 
who do you call terrorists? Right. Especially in rest- retrospect. Are revolutionaries terrorists? If they lose. If they lose. Sure. Sure are. But, yeah, I don't know. Because what's, uh, what's the difference between, like, uh, the way the United States went about their revolution versus... I don't know. I actually don't even really know an example of uh, a clearly like terrorist organization that won and is then is just the government now and considered as such. I think FARC. You think what? FARC in uh, Colombia. Mm-hmm. The. Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarios Revolucionarias de Colombia mm-hmm. Ejército del Pueblo Guerrilla movement involved in country in the continuing Colombian armed conflict starting in 1964 They are known to employ a variety of military tactics including in addition to more unconventional methods including terrorism Formed during the Cold War period as a Marxist-Leninist peasant force promoting a political line of agrarianism and anti-imperialism, funded by kidnap and ransom, and according to the Colombian government, illegal mining. I thought they had... On June 27th, June uh, 2017, FARC ceased to be an armed group, disarming itself and handing over its weapons to the United Nations. I'm sorry. One month later, on 27th of June 2017, FARC ceased to be an armed group, disarming itself and handing over its weapons to the United Nations. Huh. One month later, FARC announced its reformation as a legal political party, the Common Alternative Revolutionary Force in accordance with the terms of the peace deal. Hmm. About 2,000 to 2,500... So that's a successful terrorist group. (laughs) Like, (laughs) they literally... become a political party. Yeah, like, listen to us, we'll kill you. Okay, we'll listen to you. All right, yeah, we'll stop then, I guess. Cool. Cool. Um, I mean, I don't think it always works out that way. And I certainly don't support terrorism at all. No. But that's like, yeah, it's, it's hard to envision a world where there, nobody has that bright idea of like, oh, right. yeah, if I just like kill enough people, then somebody will listen to me. Right. I don't like it, but it's, I don't know. Like it, you, my, my golden standard is like looking back to like the, the universe where uh, Star Trek takes place of like, okay, here's like world peace. But here you go. There's, I mean, there are specific episodes that talk about terrorism on other worlds and stuff. Right. The Bajorans. The Bajorans. The, uh, what do they call them? The Maquis. The Maquis. Mm hmm. Yeah. 
And the Maquis were born out of Bajoran, right? Bajor. Bajor. Yeah, because there was a um there was a, a occupation of Bajor by the Kardashians. <laughs> the Kardashians. Um and they uh the Bajorans like I don't know if they were supported by Starfleet or not. I think probably not until after the fact, but I guess the Bajorans like eventually booted out the Cardassians at a certain point and then um in the aftermath the Starfleet like stepped in to help with the government transitions and stuff like that. Um but out of it with a peace deal that oh yeah cuz start uh, starfleet like negotiated the deal with the cardassians like helped negotiate the deal with the mm-hmm. cardassians and the mm-hmm. between the cardassians and the bedorans and um created like you know boundaries and there was give and take and blah 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 and there were a bunch of like cardassian planets or places that became cardassian planets where there were bedorans and other people um, different species like settled and then vice versa. So everybody was supposed to like evacuate, like, sorry, your, your planet just became uh Cardassian. So you got to leave. And it was essentially those people that started up the, um, the Maquis terrorist organization. Right. Reading rainbow. Reading rainbow. Was that a weird series of connections from Star Trek to TNG to Jordy LaForge to LeVar Burton to Reading Rainbow? Yes. Hmm. Very good. And also sort of thinking about the more you know. The more you know. Star pattern. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, because it was like a little star that flew across the screen. Yeah. <laughs> so, anywho, do you know the Red Cross has 97 million members and volunteers? I did not know that. That's a the lot Red, of members and volunteers. The Red Cross and Red Crescent Movement. And they assist some 233 million beneficiaries each year. Kind of incredible. It's insane. Wild how that happened. Yeah, just people got together in the middle of the of the nineteenth century and we're just like, wow, this is fucked. You know, like, dude, like war, war just sucks. Like, we can't keep doing it like this, man. Yeah, like we gotta, we gotta fix this. It's crazy. It's crazy. What else happened? Uh, a lot of things have happened. Any word back about that job? Oh no. Not yet. That was a fun day. Did I tell you anything about that yet? No, what happened? I like... Um, so, yeah, you know, as you know, I've been applying to the... I've been interviewing for this job. 
I've had multiple interviews over the phone over the past, like, I think it's two months now. It's been a long time. And um, I basically talked to, like, the HR, like, hiring manager person and the national sales director over the phone. And then um, right before my wedding, they were they asked, like, oh, um, we want to fly you out here for interviews with us. Like, when, when can you do that? And I was like, okay, well, the week after my wedding is great. They're like, okay. So shortly after my wedding, they had set me up with a flight out there. I left Boston at 8 a.m. And then arrived in Cleveland at 10, proceeded to spend... So yeah, and they they like sent a car to pick me up at the airport and drove me like thirty minutes out of the city to their headquarters slash uh, factory, and um, I proceeded to have me do interviews. They took me to lunch, gave me a tour of the factory, um, all the way up until like five o'clock. I did like four or five like different interviews, like groups. So yeah. uh, a couple different group interviews, a couple one-on-ones, like a one-on-one with the president and uh, chief operating, chief operations officer of the company. And like, it was crazy. I met like, I met a bunch of people and got interviewed by a bunch of people and it was exhausting, but I think it went pretty well. And I, I like, it, it wasn't, I, I didn't mind the travel, but so they, they had me fly in that day, and then at 5 o'clock, I just, like, got picked up and driven back to the airport and then flew home. So, so just, like, out door, to, door to door, you left your house at... I left my house what, at... Five? Oh, four. Four? Yeah. Or, yeah, like, 4.30. 4.30. We left here. Got to the airport around... Six, a little after six, got through security, got on my flight. So, yeah, the flight departed at eight, but, you know, the doors closed at quarter of or whatever for boarding. Yeah. And then you got home. What time did you get home? Um, oh, my flight was delayed on the way home about an hour. So I got home uh, around midnight. It's a long day. Yes. Oh, um, when Ivy and I left Rhode Island, we barely made our flight. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, shit. That's that's friggin' nerve-wracking. Yeah, we meant to get up at... We wanted to leave at 3? Because we had a flight at 7. Mm-hmm. Out of Boston? Out of Boston. Yeah. And then my, like, I guess we shut off the alarm or whatever. My dad, like, knocked on the door. Like, I want to say 4.15. Oh, Jesus. Something like that. I forget exactly the time. Oh, God. Too late. Yeah, it was too late. But we made it. We had, like, they closed the doors probably Ten minutes after we got on the plane, all right. Yeah, we got to got to the gate. Yeah. So it's not like we weren't running across the airport, but it was close. 
done that before. Were we? I think Cass and I were telling you about that the last time we were um, chatting all together. I think it was. I think it was at San Francisco. Right. Was it? Was that? Is that right? Yeah, we were leaving when we had visited you, and mm-hmm. <clears throat> we like got into the airport, and like security took a stupid amount of time, and. Mm-hmm. We like got through security and we're like putting our shoes on. Then we heard over the loudspeaker like, "Last call for flight, whatever it is." Um, and then they like called us by name over the speakers. Yeah, they're like Cassidy, or I probably shouldn't be saying that last names. Uh, I'll bleep it out. Yeah, and Jim bleep, um, report to gate whatever. Blah 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 blah. I was like, we were like shit. We like actually literally ran across the airport. That was crazy. Yeah. But the Cleveland thing was fine. Um, I, you know, did my thing. I think I did fine on the interviews and wrote a follow-up email yesterday. You know, they. I know they interviewed another person late last week. And so I'm pretty sure it was just between me and this other person. Right. And uh, so we'll see. And, uh, you know, given that I came this far in the interview process, I think, like, you know, they're going to let me know one way or the other. I don't think they're just going to leave me hanging. Right. I think you're right. I think they just haven't either haven't made a decision yet or haven't put together whatever. Uh, honestly, the fact that I didn't get a, a call back immediately makes me feel like maybe I did get it. Because right. I think after we're doing both the interviews, it wouldn't take them long to decide who to go with, but it would take them some time to put together a offer package, offer and package all of that. right? So if they right. if I were to not get the job, like they interview this other person, they're like, "Hey, here we're gonna go with this guy." They would know that, and they I think they would just let me know that they decided to go that direction. That's that's a good point. That's I like the optimism. I'm trying really hard, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) I am grasping. But no, I think that's reasonable, right? Like, Yeah, for sure. Because they, yeah, like if they met this person, they're like, yeah, we're going to hire this person. They would have, I think they would have told me like Friday because they interviewed the person on Thursday. Like why, what reason would they, like it's, it's not like they're, they haven't been in touch with me. I mean, especially after having sent a follow-up email, you know, it would, it would take literally nothing just to respond and be like, Hey, yeah, it was great meeting you too, but we decided to go in a different direction. That's um, always what they say, going yeah. in a different direction. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you a direction. <laughs> I'm just kidding. They should go in my direction because, you know, I want the job. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's, I think, I, I actually just thought of that explanation now, and I think it's a good one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with that. There you go. They're just taking time to count how much uh, they want to pay me. <laughs> right, Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, speaking of that, I'd like to get paid. Yeah, I'd love it for you to get paid, Joe. Yeah, that'd be nice. It's government work for you, huh? No. I'm just kidding. Sort of. <laughs> sort of. I mean, I guess it is that the school is part of the government. Yeah. Right? It's funding, right? It's a funding issue? Who knows what the issue is? I don't. I certainly don't. The problem with disbursement, like they they have the funds, as far as I know. Yeah, tell them just to take it out of like whatever stupid amount of money you paid them the past three years. 
Right, exactly. <laughs> Whatever stupid amount of money I took out in debt. Yeah. Just take it out of there. Yeah, just take it out of there. You got, they got the money, you know. You know they got it, you pay them. That's exactly. <laughs> I know you have it. I know you have it in there. Here's Somewhere. the money. Show me the money. 